Whoa, you're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcast Matrix. What is the podcastmatrix.com? When you hear the words Friday the 13th, what do you think of? While most will recollect a certain impossible-to-be-killed masked individual bearing sharp weapons of all kinds, there's another Friday the 13th that deserves attention. In 1987, Friday the 13th, the series, created a rich tapestry of completely original storytelling. Based on a series of curious, devilishly enchanted objects that must be recovered and returned to the vault to prevent truly dark fates from befalling their owners. This is the detailed revisit and review of the adventures of their reacquisition. Episode by episode. You won't find any hockey masks here. This is the Curious Goods Podcast from Two Guys Talking Horror. The building of a television series isn't something that happens quick. It surely doesn't happen and become instantly successful. More often than not, it also doesn't get to ride the coattails of a huge franchise that also happens to be within the same exact genre. But that's exactly what happened with Friday the 13th, this series. Let me explain. In 1987, Friday the 13th, the series launched. Its character's goal? To seek out darkly enchanted objects, sold by a distant, now dead, family member, and return them to the vault, where they can do no more harm. And thus, a series was born. To be reviewed! This is the 101 for the Curious Goods Podcast. A retelling, a revisit, and complete educational detailing of Friday the 13th, the series. Greetings, everyone. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your other host. As we record this, I am a 48-year-old man that originally saw this when I was 17 years old. Nick? And I am a 39-year-old man who originally saw this when he was 8, 9, 10 years old and uh, probably shouldn't have been watching it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Though, you know, what's fun about this series and what we'll talk about is that traditionally we also don't date when we're capturing and reviewing these things right but because this is going to be the very first series that we're looking at frankly in perspective review where mm-hmm. it's been 30 whole years since this television show actually was featured on national syndication right. so yeah, this is a very strange time inside of the cone of podcast for you and i uh, the neat part though is that we're going to detail everything that's going to happen inside of this podcast its captures and the actual program here inside of our 101 episode The original experience. We've already captured a little bit of when we watched this, but let's talk more about when we originally saw this. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Nick? Um, d- detail seeing this for the very first time for us. Uh, I, c- I can never remember actual seasons or episodes or anything like that mm-hmm. from back then. Yep. All I know is that, uh, especially during the summer, I remember staying up till you know the break of dawn mm-hmm. because that's what you did when you were a kid yeah. and it was summer you mm-hmm. you did as much as you possibly could in one day mm-hmm. and i loved watching the 
syndicated horror stuffs that were on late night regular television. Uh, we're, we're recording uh, out of Missouri, just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And there was a station still in existence, uh, KPLR Channel 11. Mm-hmm. Now it's a CW affiliate, but uh, back then it was just good old Channel 11. Mm-hmm. And on Fridays and Saturday nights, specifically Saturday nights, I remember they would show a handful of these anthology shows. There were uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was this Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, uh, Freddy Krueger even had his own. He had uh, Freddy's Nightmares. There was also one called Monsters. And this was this was the period of time where, hey, okay, we're going to throw our anthologies on because then the last thing we're going to show before we you know end our broadcast day is a bunch of Three Stooges shorts. Right. So... Me, I'd love the I love the horror aspect, but I'd be watching it in my bedroom. And at the time, my bedroom was a converted garage, mm-hmm. so it was literally like a cave when you turned the lights off. So here I am, a young a, a young kid. Still, I don't I probably shouldn't have been watching this stuff at the age that I was, but my mother taught me at a very early age, or at least tried to teach me at a very early age. This stuff isn't real. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to show you this. Like my very first experience with horror mm-hmm. was the film An American Werewolf in London. Right. Tame by today's standards where horror is concerned, but still very impactful. And for a child who is not yet in the double digits, seeing something like that can have an effect on you. But oh, luckily yeah. enough... There was also a show, Nickelodeon, the, the cable station, Nickelodeon, had just started up, and they had a show, uh, Lights, Camera, Action, hosted by the late Leonard Nimoy, Nimoy. Mm-hmm. and they showed you how, you how they did special effects in movies and television shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I knew this stuff wasn't real, but I'm also an eight, nine-year-old child, so there's the whole... But it could be real mm-hmm. in the back of my head. So at night, it was it was great when I was watching these things because then the Stooges would come on and remind me, oh, I can laugh, I can I can ease it. the the tension of watching all this horror stuff was alleviated thanks to Larry, Moe, and Curly, sometimes Shemp. And then I grew up just loving the concept of anthologies, but unlike all the other anthologies that came before it. There was something different about Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th was not just your, uh, and tonight's story is going to be about this, and it's not going to have any connection with anything that we showed you before or going forward. It actually had reoccurring characters and a reoccurring storyline that weaved into everything. You know, you go over to Tales from the Dark Side, although another series that I loved, uh, created and produced by the late... George A. Romero, mm-hmm. didn't have any connection whatsoever, whatsoever to itself. It was just gr- little, short horror movies mm-hmm. in, in crammed into 48 minutes. Same thing with Freddy's Nightmare. It had Freddy Krueger. Freddy was like the, the crypt keeper, essentially, telling, <laughs> telling cheeky, really cheesy stories that happened on Elm Street, mm-hmm. and sometimes involved him sometimes it didn't sometimes freddie was just telling the story he wasn't actually there in the story and sometimes he was friday the 13th though stuck with me and i know it had more to do with just the name 
It definitely has way more to do than just the name. And as you were running through your little anthology there, there are a variety of things that you've said here that just really do strike home. And the first one that got me was An American Werewolf in London. Mm. That is probably one of the very first outright horror memories that I have in my brain. But then funny bits and then some really nice naughty bits that are also tossed <laughs> in that movie. That's a great film. Another one. That oh, it is. It is a, it a, is a solid film. Yeah, yes. it, it deserves a complete perspective review. Anyway, the, uh, the, the gist of that movie is that it reminded me very much of everything I had seen, especially been pushed on by my dad in regard to everything Twilight Zone. Mm. Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, all of the other shows that came out that were very much like that, that all have a skew in them right where it's not real and it's not horror but very often it's somewhere in the middle yeah oh yeah where where they're taking definitive bits of storytelling and eking out leeching out that little tiny bit that is the fear factor where you know you'd never want this to happen Mm -hmm. and I, I remember being enamored with that because that is the kind of startling, jarring moment that I like where I totally don't get off on the blood gore blah moments that happen inside of modern day horror. Mm-hmm, yeah. The, the stuff that is Twilight Zone absolutely gets me. And I think that's probably what leads me to a series like this and why my dad and I would have started watching this. This, again, was inside of my junior year of high school. I remember specifically being not at home very often, especially during the summers, a time when I would have been steeped in what were the last throws of being able to go trick-or-treating without getting that look because you're getting told to go trick-or-treating. I remember having tons of fun with friends back then during trick-or-treating and Halloween days. And so what I do remember is watching the first probably season, season and a half of this program Mm -hmm. with my dad. The rest of it is all kind of weird bits. Uh, In 1988, I was asked to leave my dad's house. And so I did. And I don't remember a lot of much of anything that I did with my dad until I finished with college. Yeah. And so the rest of the series, I don't remember hardly any of it. But the w- the very first launch of it, I remember sitting down and watching it. The other thing that this series reminds me of is very much the original Creep Show. Remember oh the yes, original Creep Show movie. Yes. Another one we need to do a perspective review on. There, there's Stephen King and George A. Romero right there. Uh, f- phenomenal, phenomenal storytelling, and even more naughty bits. Which is the other piece of why I think I liked all of this pseudo horror stuff because very often. There would be either half naked or completely naked women inside of it. So this it, this is true. There was always the eye candy. Yes, w- without question, and that's really uh, the kind of the, the bits of what brought this series to Nick and I. We're wondering how you guys originally got involved in watching this series, or maybe you haven't seen any of it yet. <gasps> Imagine that. Imagine that. You may not have seen this. We're going to be pointing to a resource online that you can go and watch some episodes of it right now. But more importantly, we're going to point you over to the entire series, which you can buy right now online. Go to the show notes over at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Inside of the show notes for every single one of our episodes, you're going to find the ability to watch this episode now if it's available someplace online. But more importantly, you're going to be able to go buy the whole series so you can have it for you in your family and anybody that might want to watch it also. It's definitively the best way to follow along with the Curious Goods podcast. The history 
of Friday the 13th, the series. As I'd mentioned inside the intro, this is not the first property ever that's used the words Friday the 13th in the title. Right. And my thing is, is that I'm a huge horror nut. So not just just, just enjoying uh, a film, it's absorbing the history of the film as well. Uh, for me, when I buy a DVD or a Blu-ray, it's got to have the special features, man. I mm-hmm. got to yeah. learn. I'm with you. I got to learn some stuff after I'm done watching the movie. I agree. That's important for yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. So one of the things that I did when we started talking about doing this podcast, I went back and I did a little research because you got to know what you're talking about before Agreed. you talk about it. I agree. One of the amazing things that I found out is that really this show just started off to be a cash grab. Hmm. You know, hmm. Paramount was just getting into the syndication game. Mm-hmm. And really all they cared about was, okay, what properties do we own the names for? And what can we shove out on television for syndication? Because Paramount owned Star Trek. So what did they do? Let's make Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. And Star Trek The Next Generation, even though that first season was rocky, it eventually built up into the next big thing where Trek was concerned. Oh, yeah. So they wanted the same thing with some of their other their other properties, specifically Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Frank Mancuso Jr., who is the producer of Friday the 13th, the series, but also the producer of the Friday the 13th movie series from the second film all the way to the final film. Mm, wow. They basically got a hold of him and said, hey, we want to do Friday the 13th as a TV series. Mm-hmm. And we want you to produce. And Mancuso's like, what, what, what do you mean? I, I'm, I'm already having a problem doing the movies. Because Paramount hated the fact that they owned Friday the 13th. Because mm-hmm. those movies were making tons of money in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of, eh, oh, well, yeah, sure, we own that too. But uh, we don't really like talking about it. The only reason why Mancuso really dove into it was he wasn't told what to do. He wasn't given, this is what the show has to be. He was able to, along with the other producers of the show, he was able to craft the show. And early on, he was like, well, we're not going to do anything that takes place around a lake with campers and a crazed killer that wears a hockey mask. Because honestly, how long do you think something like that could really last on television before it got stale? Right, right. Even though there were like 12 movies. (laughs) As of this date. As of this date, yes. There, ba- there back, back probably then, could be more. Right, but back then in 1987, how many how many Friday the 13th movies were there? The sixth. The, the sixth film had just come out. Uh, wow. Jason Lives okay. had just come out. Isn't it strange that over, what now, 30 years, there's only been there's only been 12? And the majority of them came out during the 80s. Yeah, see, isn't that yeah. funny? That's very funny. But Mancuso really wanted to do an anthology type of show, and the whole antique aspect was the perfect way to mm-hmm. introduce all this stuff. Yeah. Really, all, all they did with Friday the 13th was try to get as many... It was trickery. Really, it was trickery. We want to try to trick fans into coming over and watching the show, thinking that they're going to see Jason, and hopefully some of them will stick around. And that first season, when when you're on syndication, the sh- you know the the network will buy you and put you on whenever they want, and it's usually one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And where the show was concerned, it started getting it started getting good reviews. It started getting good numbers. Actually, where 
syndication was concerned, it was number two right behind Star Trek The Next Generation. If you can believe that. Oh, I can. And I can. Especially that first season. I mean, it was, like you said, it was pretty rough. Well, true, but I'm saying as it got more notice, the parent company was like, oh, well, we can make more money by asking advertisers for this amount if we put it on at 10 o'clock instead of 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, ooh, ooh, we can make more money if we put it on at 7 o'clock. And the problem is, is that once you start getting noticed by middle America sitting down to have dinner as a family, and then all of a sudden there's this show about a killer wheelchair or something like that, mm-hmm. it starts to take notice. Mm-hmm. And sadly, season three was the end of the show. It, it could have run longer i mean come on that there were a lot of antiques in that in that story oh, yeah. yeah you could have this this show could have gone on for years and years but unfortunately because of because of the almighty dollar it ended up withering on the vine what does the word antique mean to you nick i'll start this one off antiquing was something that my bonus mom, Marianne, who's still alive, mm-hmm. is is still very much interested in, where there will be a time now during the week or the weekend, but back then it was definitively for the weekends, right, right. where either on a very early Friday evening after getting some dinner, or on the weekends, almost all day from, say, noon to early evening, we would be out looking for antiques. Mm, okay. And she has a very definitive vision of what she likes and what fits her household and uh, what she likes to have and showcase to people. All of my antique concepts are all kind of skewed in that direction. Mm -hmm. I've gone into antique malls and antique shops and I can see stuff that kind of looks like that now, though when I go into them now, what I see is a lot of people trying to make things that look like antiques yeah. when in reality they're not. They just went down to the store and bought something and now they've thrown some extra paint and distressed a little bit and then are trying to sell it for more money. Mm-hmm. That's what I see a lot of now. But back then you had the sage old antiques where it was more than just a, a little wooden horse. It was a horse that maybe had been had fallen off of a truck and then cobbled back together, but it wasn't quite the same horse. Well, you can see that from the manufacturer of things. Right, yeah. Whereas now, it's not nearly quite the same. I think it also has something to do with the collector culture. Mm. I go into antique malls and antique stores. Uh, Me, I am a a comic collector, but I also enjoy collecting old movie memorabilia specifically for the horror genre. Mm -hmm. And you can find some of that stuff now in antique stores and antique malls. Right. But more and more, it's becoming, so you like books. All right, so here's the entire Harry Potter collection in hardback. Uh, they're, they're in an antique store now, but they're not that old. Oh, but it's an antique store. It's a collection. You, know, you got to get this. Oh, oh, look at these commemorative glasses that came out from McDonald's back in the late 80s for the Muppets Take Manhattan. Oh, well, they're collector items. You, you, you Antique store. No, no, but they're not antique. Right. In my right. mind, when yeah, I think of antique, yeah. I think of something old, but not because of age. It's because of history. Mm-hmm. It has a history to it. It has an ancient waft. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah we're, we're on the same page. Yeah. We're on the same page there. I think that's what gets me with some of the things that are now labeled as, quote, antique. Yeah. Is that. 
you've absolutely hit the button on the whole collector's thing. There's no question in my mind. I, again, I realize now as a 48-year-old man when I go back and I look at things and they go, wow, it's the whole collection of, in your case, you said Harry Potter. But I can go back and look at a variety of other things that are in the same vein and you mm. go, oh, wait a second. That came out in 1993? Well, that's 25 years ago. Yeah. So it, it, it does happen. And if, if you were in an antique shop that I would have been back when I was 17 years old and you'd have seen something that was 25 years old, Okay, well. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's kind of... I'm sure you own, being being the master podcaster that you are, I'm sure you own some pretty old microphones. I don't, but... Oh, you, you don't? But, I, but if I, you I did, yeah. you could consider yeah. one an antique microphone. A- absolutely. If it's 50 years old, that right there, that is an antique microphone. Yeah, one of the things, when we, when we get to talking about collecting, I, I think the only thing I really got into collecting was toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I got out of it very quickly, especially when I became my own man and had a girlfriend. Because now when it becomes either get to go buy cool kitsch whatever or you get to pay your rent, well, that's a pretty quick decision traditionally in most cases. It was also just definitively before the fact you could go back and say move in with your parents or go find a friend to move in with. I I didn't have anything like that. And so you really had to try and make do with what you had. And so that stopped definitively in, in the in the very early 90s, uh, the, the whole collecting thing. But the things that I do have from back then, I do have them. Would I consider any of them antiques? Not really. The only stuff that would be considered antiques was, was would be, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I, I really did fall into. A couple of friends of mine that were the original Star Trek fans. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that are curious, that's 1966. Well, <laughs> if you were an original Star Trek fan and you started collecting things back then... Okay, well, those things are now not only worth quite a bit of money, but even back in the mid-90s, well, they were still really collectible, and right. they held and retained value. Whereas you got towards the end of the 90s and into the aughts, a lot of that, quote, collectible crap all kind of fell off the shelf. Nobody yeah. had any value for it. The stuff that you'd acquired at conventions was, you know, it, was worth, it wasn't worth nothing, but it was worth way more to you than it would ever be to somebody that would walk up to you with a wallet full of money. That started to change now, especially for that old classic Trek stuff. And not surprisingly, as, as people and stars start to die off, right. well, not so amazingly, it all now becomes more popular and more worthwhile and valuable. So there is value to holding on to things, especially if it's inside the kind of entertainment somehow. Yeah, yeah. But how does that translate to antiques? And unless you're some sort of aficionado that can go and identify things like classic cars or classic antiques of some kind that have either a specific value or a trait or are part of a a collection Mm -hmm. that when you have that and the other pieces of the collection, they then mean more. Unless you have that Rosetta Stone knowledge, it doesn't really mean anything to you. And it's it's kind of a judgment call. Right. You look at uh, my, my, my bonus mom. She still has this wonderful old sewing machine. And it's like old school sewing machine. Everybody's trying to picture a box with a needle coming out of the middle, out of the bottom of it going, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a wheel where there's a pedal and you your foot powers the pedal that turns the wheel. Right. That then if there was an apparatus or something attached to it, then it would make that function as a sewing machine. That's what my bonus mom has. It's wrought iron. It's from from ungodly old. And it is an antique. There's no question in my mind. But on top of that, what is now a table, 
is a lamp that is also an antique that also has candle holders that are all also antique. That, that's that's what, I'm, what I think of when I think of antiques is that where there is one, there are then many, which is probably the perfect segue for a television show like this one. The Curious Goods. We didn't just name this the Curious Goods podcast because that's the name of the shop that Uncle Lewis owned inside <laughs> of this. We named it because of the curious goods that are featured inside of this television program, which are probably, well, no, not probably. It is why I bothered to watch this show originally, mm. preying a little bit on that old antiquing thing, but definitively on my father's interest in things that were demonically possessed. My dad was an original old school horror hound, just outright. Yeah. Anything that was horror, the man was latched to it and loved it. And I, I, again, I don't have that same value for the horror genre, but latching on to things like this that are in that vein of Twilight Zone-esque slash something is skew. Right, yeah. I definitively like that, as did my dad. The biggest piece of that inside of this entire entire series of episodes and series are the goods inside of the Curious Goods vault. Mm. The The fact that every episode can be something different, but we have characters that continue the, 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 the through story of we have a mission. It, it, that's, that's how things are set up in the episode one. There's a mission statement. We have to fulfill this, and we don't stop until we're done. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're a storyteller, when you're when you're crafting a show like this, that right there just opens the door to as many episodes as you want. Were there 90 items that were in this antique shop or 472 items in this antique shop? I mean, honestly, how many have been already secured in the vault? How many are out there in the world? How many do you have to get? How many have been destroyed? Can they be destroyed? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many questions and you can, there's so many ways to play around with this. And that's what makes this show so interesting to yeah. watch yeah. is every episode is different, yeah. but there's a bit of familiarity because we are continuing a story of these, of at least the, the, the main three characters, Ryan, Mickey, and Jack. Mm -hmm. I think what I also love, too, about the, the products, the, the goods inside of this series, mm. is that they all have a generation point where they could be their own thing inside of their own feature film. Mm, yeah. The, the episodes are compressed into about 45, 46 minutes, 47 minutes mostly, so that you you get a definitive helping of what you get. But looking at almost every single one of these items, this these could all easily be some sort of feature film seedling. Mm -hmm. That could be used to foster storytelling, and I really, I really do love that about this series. Oh yeah, yeah. The cast of characters, the people inside of a cast for a television show like Friday the Thirteenth, the series, aren't just names on a list that allows you to be interested in some of the actors that are involved. Because frankly, I didn't know who any of these people are. I zero, none. And so that didn't play a factor at all when we were watching this show. It was definitively that it was latched on by 
the title of the series, duh. Mm-hmm. But then also latched on because of the curious goods that were featured inside of this, this series that just happened to be called Friday the 13th. Right. The first character that we're going to focus on is... Louis Vanderdee. Played by R.G. Armstrong. This is Uncle Lewis, the man that owned Curious Goods previously, that unfortunately was killed by the power that has enchanted all of the goods inside of Curious Goods. Yeah, the first episode, we get a very brief... Super brief. I mean, the amount of screen time that Uncle Lewis has in that first episode is minutes... Maybe maybe less than five, probably I think, around I think four minutes, yeah, like somewhere around there. You, you and I have talked about it longer inside of this episode <laughs> than it was actually featured inside of the original series episode. We know that he's done the deal with the devil. Yes, check mark. No. Yes, we know that he's had these goods have been now enchanted because of his deal with the devil. Check mark. Yes, we know that the series is eventually going to recover most, if not all, of these goods. Check mark. But what do we really know about Uncle Lewis? That's another question that I love that is asked inside of that initial episode in that very brief introduction that who knows what's going to happen with Uncle Lewis inside of the entire One series. would assume right. that more information will be brought to light during the run of the show. Yeah. Ryan Dalian. Played by John D. LeMay. Ryan is the spunkmeister... Uh, for lack of a better term, to put it into perspective for people that are completely unfamiliar with the series, he is the young Robert Downey Jr. He, yeah, he, I mean, and like he, seriously, if you swap out Robert, he's your heart young, throb. yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think it's a little bit goonier than that. I th- if you swap out a young Robert Downey Jr. for Ryan's character, you have essentially the same thing, just with better acting chops. Well, I mean, I mean, it, that type of character was. I don't want to say it was a cliche, but it was a cliche Tiger for everything. Beat. Yeah, it's a dude out of time. In, in the 80s, yeah. even moving into the 90s, you had to have that good looking, wisecracking character that would jump into action if you needed him. And Ryan does jump into action from time to time, from if memory serves me. I mean, I. I don't want to be misogynistic, but this is the late 80s, and I know that they do not portray the character of Mickey, his cousin. I know they don't portray her as the tough-as-nails female character that we're used to seeing now in film and television. Yeah, I'll she's agree the She's the average female. Yeah. The, the, the one with... Uh, not the girl in peril. I'm, I don't want to say that. She's not Daphne from Scooby-Doo. Right. But... She's definitely not the ass-kicking, take-no-prisoners type of female character that we're used to now. Yeah, I'll agree with that. So Ryan is the one that has to jump in and and do a lot of the physical stuff. Yeah, when I I think they're able to pull it off with kind of a tandem effort between the two of them, on and off, depending on the episode content. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those that are curious, Ryan is essentially a a 20-something who is kind of directionless and just so happens to have an uncle that dies and wills him a portion of the uh, of the curious goods shop. Yeah, yeah, he he ends up what he thinks is his lucky day, his big payday, being one half of the inheritors of an antique store. Hey, all right, there's money to be made here and then it oh, oh, sorry Ryan. No. There's no money to be made here, only pain and suffering. Yeah. But the great thing about the character is once 
upon realizing what has happened, what he's gotten himself into, he steps up. Yeah. And takes responsibility yeah. and goes out and I will all right. I know what I got to do. I got to find these items. It's also a piece of what's missing inside of many modern day television shows, which is that sense of duty that mm, the responsibility, the, 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 the responsibility sandwich that you are, are handed. And then you're willing to go ahead and take a bite of because you need to, mm. that that's, that's missing a lot inside of the cinema televised and streaming stuff all the way around. Mickey Foster played by Roby, a striking woman still, I mean, she just looks older now. She's got the big giant red hair still uh-huh. to this day. And uh, back then, no question, a piece of eye candy, but that can also stand her ground with Ryan inside of dialogue mm-hmm. that also fosters along the storytelling with a lot of that caregiving need that needs to happen in a show like this. Yeah, her being the female, she is more of the caregiving character. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is is that she is the fish out of water character where mm. all of this is concerned mm-hmm. because when we meet Mickey, she's this she's got her life figured out. She's this well to do. She's kind of, actually kind of a snob, mm-hmm. kind of a pain in the ass. Ready to really, marry a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Getting ready to marry a lawyer. Mm-hmm. She she really doesn't want to have anything to do with the shop. She just wants to find out how much everything, get everything appraised, and then just sell it. Mm-hmm. Walk away from it, and then go back to her old life. Yeah. And Ryan, upon meeting him, because they're they're related, they're cousins, but they're cousins by marriage. Mm-hmm. So they know of each other, but they don't really know each other. Mm-hmm. So now you're also given this great back and forth. I'm not saying it's like moonlighting to where the two characters have a lot of chemistry with each other, but it's a it's a dynamic duo, if I can use the Batman analogy. You, you can't. I, I can't. I'm not allowed. <laughs> I deem that you're not allowed to. <clears throat> I'll, I'll be busted saying, by Gotham Police. Bit. That's saying quite a bit. There's a, there's a definitive <laughs> not relationship. So as dy- you wear a Batman as, shirt. As, no as I'm wearing a Batman shirt. No, how about this? Not. The not so dynamic <laughs> duo. Yeah, how about work. how about that? That'll work. That'll work. They have this great <laughs> partnership. Well, it's a partnership. It's because it's, you're right. It's definitely well. It's not only is it a partnership. It's a piece of the mechanism inside of the show. Right. Both of them are giving up oodles of money. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's like. Uh, go F yourself money, but I'm telling you that it's a substantial amount of money where they would sell off the shop, mm-hmm. they would sell all the crap inside the shop, they would sell the property, blah, all of that. They would each get a definitive amount of money if they just sold out. Yeah. And they both choose not to because of the greater good. Right. And the great, the funny thing about it is, is that for Mickey, Mickey is kind of guilted into taking that first step to to the responsibility sandwich. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't want this. I, I want to go back to my world, but I'm partially responsible, so I guess I, I, I guess so. And throughout the series, it, uh, again, if memory serves me, I know that Mickey becomes more than what she started out to be, which is always great when you're developing a character, because if your characters were the same, uh, the same way that they were in episode one of season one, and they're they're exactly the same in episode one of season two. Well, where's the character growth? All right. The bottom line is that Mickey provides us not only something striking to look at, but a character to develop. Jack Marshak, played by Chris Wiggins. There are many things inside this series that I would consider a golden spark plug, but this is the one. 
there are few actors that instantly make something you're watching more digestible than Chris Wiggins does inside this series. There's no question in my mind that without him inside this series, this would have been a pilot that never went anywhere. The character of Jack Marshak is your exposition character. He's he he is the character that's going to give you that ancient knowledge. He is the he is the soothsayer. He is the the sage that sends the heroes out on their journey. Mm-hmm. This is the information you need to be able to combat the evil that you're about to go up against. Yeah. But Jack isn't afraid to get his hands dirty as well. He could just be the dusty old man who sits around all the books and tells, oh, well, so this is what you got to go do. Bye-bye. Get off my book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, he's right in the thick of it, too. I agree. With, with Mickey and Ryan. Mm-hmm. Actually, sometimes being the uh, the one that pulls Mickey and Ryan out of the fire. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the other thing that he brings, just like any other, quote, older character does inside of a series like this, he just brings knowledge across the board, mm-hmm. whether it's from his many books and leather-bound libraries that he has access to or something else that he just happens to know about because he is who he is. Uh, I love that. It, it's a it's a piece of a character that I think could probably fit inside of any series, television show, or streaming media source that is used and utilized well. There have been a handful of great depictions of characters like that. And one that always pops into my mind is uh, Joss Whedon's original Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series. Mm-hmm. There was a character on there named Giles. He was the he was a watcher. He was a part of an organization called the Watchers. Mm-hmm. And guess what they did? They watched after <laughs> I don't know what did they do. They watched after the the Slayer, the the chosen one. And they were the ones who always had the answers to whatever evil was upon them because of their many leather-bound books. <laughs> and you could just be somebody who recycles information, just regurgitates the information out for your main characters and let them go do the thing. Or you can have character. Yeah. Just like Giles on Buffy, Jack Marshak has character. Yeah. I could not possibly say anything better than that, except that I will. <laughs> as you started as you started talking about complimentary characters, another series that springs to mind that had so many just grand moments. And I, again, I, I, if I could, I would take my time and I would go back to all of these grand series that I remember yeah. and I would just do nothing but perspective reviews of them all day, every day until I'm dead. Uh-huh. What I'm referring to is quantum leap. And while you look at Sam Beckett played by Scott Bakula and you go, wow, you know, what an actor. Yes. Yeah. yeah there's definitely, no question. Definitely. But if we start talking about the glue people that matter inside of that series, no episode could be complete without the character of Al. Yeah. Played by Dean Stockwell. You got to have Al and you've got to have him yelling at Ziggy. And Ziggy, right. And if you don't have any one of those three components, there's something <laughs> completely missing. It's right? it's like it's like having a plate of spaghetti but you have a plate of spaghetti. It, it really is. And I uh, again, that's another show that just <laughs> way too many things to talk about and so many things that spring to mind when I think of it. But it is such a, a, a brilliant series because of the glue that's made by all of the characters and the, the relationships between those that I won't say mirrors what happens inside of Friday the 13th, the series. That's a that's a giant, giant 
praised and I'm not ready to heft onto the series yet. But again, that the character of Jack Marshock is one that is for the ages and one that should definitively be emulated in many more series. Why you should be listening to our program. Well, beyond Nick and I being incredibly gifted reviewers of modern day programming. And entertaining to boot. That's right. Uh, Just kidding. The bottom line is that you need to be listening to this program because one, this was a series way before its time that preyed on the fact that it happened to be named Friday the 13th that seeds itself from some incredibly endearing storytelling value. Yeah. You have so many different items. You have three different distinct characters, none of which are alike, none of which that are even kind of alike, Mm -hmm. wrapping themselves around each of the things that needs to come back to the vault or all hell is going to break loose. Right. Literally. Yeah. How is that not awesome? And the answer is that it is awesome. The neat part about listening to our program, though, is that you're going to be listening to us talking about this neat thing, yes, but we're going to be talking about it as to how it compares to the stuff that you get now Mm. versus what you were given back then, what the differences are, but more importantly, what's good and what's bad and why. Right. That's the value that you're going to get from the Curious Kids podcast that, frankly, you get from everything that we want to try and review. Oh, yeah. Because it really is about detailing what is and does work as engaging storytelling and what isn't and does not work as engaging storytelling inside of modern feature films, televised content, and streaming content. You can have all the money in the world. You can have some of the best special effects money can buy. And if you don't know how to tell a story or if you don't hire the right people to act out that story for you, it's going to be a dud. Right. Now, the, 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 the character development and arcs inside of this, from what I remember, and we have to remember, too, as we start the reviews of this, I have not seen every episode of this series, right. which is another one of the giant gets for me, is that I get to go and not only visit the stuff that I'll have some inkling and memory of, but then all of this other storytelling that I have absolutely no idea where any of this is going. Yeah. So for those of you that are listening to this podcast and wondering, well, wait a second, I've, I've never seen any of this. What am I going to get from this? Well, frankly, you guys are going to get exactly what I'm getting out of it, which is more great storytelling from a team of story writers that just frankly don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. The team that is telling these stories, they don't make teams of storytellers like this anymore at all, anywhere. They just don't. The way that they tell the story, they don't make stories like this. They don't tell stories like this anymore at all, period. And being able to go back and revisit a lot of this, especially from that early set of the series, that spills into two complete other seasons. Man, that's exciting for me. It's like yeah. a, it's like finding a new streaming television show that someone found out about that I now get to tell other people about. So, again, I, 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 I for those that we're making this episode specifically, the 101, for people that have either never seen this series or maybe kind of remember that there was this series called Friday the 13th. This is for you. There's there's no question in my mind. Yeah. And so for those of you that, that think that there's no value in the podcast, there's all kinds of value. Because in addition to telling you whether we think it's good or bad, we're going to be telling you why it's good 
or bad. Yeah. More importantly, we're going to be telling you how writing structure works inside of modern day television and feature films. Pacing where where the story is 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 concerned, hugely important for television. Giant, giant. It all really comes down to quality. Yes, Friday the 13th, the series, is dated. It has dated special effects. It has dated acting. It has dated camera work. It has dated everything because it is dated. Correct. But the storytelling aspect, when you, and not every episode is a gem. I do remember quite a few episodes, even me as a young, small child going, wow, that was stupid. So I know we're in in store for some clunkers, mm-hmm. but I also know that there's going to be some great storytelling coming our way. And it doesn't matter how old the property is. It doesn't matter how dated it may look. As long as the story at its heart is solid and is filled with quality, then it doesn't matter when it was made and how it was made. And that's something I'm looking forward to while revisiting and reviewing this series. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the last thing I want to leave everybody with in regard to why you want to be listening to our program, it's really simple. It's the same concept that we've taken across now thousands of hours of podcasting over 13 years. And it's that your time is exactly the same as the money that sits inside of either your wallet or your purse. And you, as a human being, get to choose where you spend that time, just like you spend the money inside of your wallet or purse. We're helping you find the reasons and places to spend that time money. So listen to what we have to say, but more importantly, tell us what you think. The best part of this program for me is the the chemistry set that Nick and I get to set up. But remember, that chemistry set doesn't happen at all without your input yeah we need the feedback we really do and that's where we always encourage you to go over to our website that's curiousgoodspodcast.com click anywhere on the right hand side of the page fill out the quick web form and tell us what you think about friday the 13th the series until we review the next episode of another darkly enchanted good i'm mike wilkerson one of your hosts And I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your other host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Curious Goods Podcast. We are always interested in learning what you remember about these enchanted items and their tales of reacquisition. Connect with us immediately at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com to share your treasured information. Until the next artifact reveals itself, the vault is now closed. <laughs>